Hello and welcome back to In Her Shoes. This week we are talking about women in media. I'm Alethea and I have the lovely Caroline Mitchell and Katie Baggett with me here today. So we're just going to start off going straight to Caroline. So Caroline's had an amazing career in radio so far. So I just want to pass over to you, Caroline. Can you elaborate a little bit on your job history? <laughs> My job history, it's quite long actually. Um, I started off as a media student. I, I did one of the first um, media courses actually in the country um, back in the late 70s. And um, it was designed to train people to go into educational broadcasting. So it was partly about education and how to structure things properly. And it was also a media studies course. So, and actually I was thinking back when I knew I was doing this interview, it was where I first encountered sexism, raw, raw sexism. And I'm afraid it was when I was trying to get equipment out from the technicians at the university. So this was... And, and basically, they treated women and men differently. And I mean, it's obviously changed completely now. But so if you wanted particular equipment, it's a look at you and say, well, why do you want this? And you say, well, because I'm going to do an interview or, you know, and it, that's, it felt hard. It, it, and it was weird. Uh, even though, you know, we've been trained on it, we were then, you know, they, they felt like there were some barriers. And in terms of roles as well, we, we were sort of definitely, um, the women were sort of shunted into particular roles and there were more men on the course. And um, I, I started questioning all this and luckily I had a sort of, you know, this was the late 70s, feminism was in full flow. And I actually, for my final dissertation, sort of brought it up as a major issue, which of course didn't go down that well with the university authorities, but luckily the external examiner was completely on the ball and said, this person is bringing up real issues that, that you know, is a, is a problem. So I, I did that course and I fell in love with radio, completely fell in love with radio. And I think it was partly that working in TV, which I did as well, I found uh, you had to work in quite big teams and I was always being shunted into the PA roles rather than directing roles and um, in, in, in the student team. And I realised with radio, I could basically have total control over what I was doing. Um, I did quite a lot of studying then about the media institutions that were around then. And it was basically the BBC and a small amount of commercial radio, not very much in each city, not like we've got now. And obviously this is pre-internet. And, and um, I learned a lot about sort of sociology of employment and I became very critical. Actually, I started looking at what, you know, what women were doing in the BBC. I, I was hearing from a, uh, in commercial radio in particular a large amount of sexist claptrap about women's voices, what women should be doing. At that time, you really didn't hear women on air in, in commercial radio at all, hardly at all, apart from the odd, silly advert voice. And on BBC Radio 1, there was still only one female broadcaster who's still there, the wonderful Annie Nightingale, who is still on Radio 1 in her 80s, would you believe? Read her autobiography, it's amazing, absolutely amazing. So she was there with hundreds of male DJs, 
And I started writing about it and talking about it. And I joined a feminist radio production group in London called Women's Airwaves. And I chugged along there as a student with my tape recorder, which was then called a ewer, it's a great big heavy thing, written on tape that you cut, not, not, you know, nothing digital. Went along there and it was, it was the first all-female group I'd ever been to. And as it happened, not many people knew how to operate the equipment because they hadn't had the opportunity. They wanted to put their views over. But, you know, so I ended up teaching them all how to use the tape recorder and um, doing interviews. And I made programs with that group and for Capital Radio then. So we were trying, then Capital Radio had to do speech content. And we were the Women's Airways, and there was also a Black Women's Radio group then. We were making programs about subjects that were not covered. So that included programs about women's refuges. It, it included you know, all the sort of fringe things, really. And at the same time, I had discovered community radio, which didn't exist in the UK at the time. And there were a lot of Australians in London when I was first there. And they had all come from Australia, which had a thriving community radio sector. So they had stations where women had programs. The, the, the infamous one was um, a station in, in Melbourne. They had a, a program called Dykes on Mics. And at the time, it was completely taboo, completely taboo. So I was getting all these influences from Australia and America, where student radio was much more interesting and out there. And there was an absolute stranglehold on the British media at the time. And I saw community radio as a way of opening it up. So I got very involved with actually campaigning to, for the community sector. We now have we now have over 300 community radio stations. So I got very involved in that kind of thing. And then um, I worked as a community media worker um, in, in the sort of art sector funded by the GLC um, in London. And I also trained as a teacher, a, a further education, higher education teacher, so that I could teach better. And to cut a long story short, I then moved down to Bristol, teached, got very involved in radio down there, and worked for a couple of stations there, and all the time teaching and making radio. And when I was in Bristol, again, this was a time when the airwaves were full of Blokes' voices, male DJs, you know. And I later wrote about it in a book, my book, which is called Women and Radio Airing Differences. And basically, um, the blokes just assumed that they had the space on the airwaves. I mean, they just assumed they were they ha they had a right to it. They had a right to jobs. There was an insidious amount of really, really sexist discourses that were just assumed that men should have, be on air and that actually women's voices weren't suitable for radio and was that but some really sexist discourses around women um you know women's voices were too high audiences didn't want to listen to women they were only suitable for certain things i.e not music presentation or they were only suitable for being on air in the middle of the night. They certainly weren't suitable for taking responsibility for a whole programme. Occasionally they were allowed on to be a sidekick or a bounce, they were called, for the bloke to have jokes and, and they were sometimes called the giggle. So 
at that time, I was very networked into a whole load of women in Bristol and arts organisations, political organisations, community organisations, youth organisations. And I was with a, um, a friend of mine talking about how dire British radio was. And we came up with the idea of having a woman's radio station. And we didn't realise at the time, but there hadn't ever been that in, in the UK. There had been in other countries, but not in the UK. And we started talking to people we knew and we set up, to cut a long, long story short, we spent a year developing this station and um, we got a license to broadcast for a very short time on International Women's Day 1992. And there were 200 women involved in that station. And we, we, we basically were given a four-story building in the centre of Bristol, it became FemFM headquarters, and we just headhunted and recruited anyone who was interested, including some of the women who were working behind the scenes at the BBC. So, of course, there's always been women working in radio, but they've normally been behind the scenes and visible. And any the women were so keen to prove that they could do anything in radio that they just everyone gave their time for free at the time and we just had we just made programs and we we went on air i think we had something like 40 female djs we had people coming from london down to bristol um and we had all sorts of speech programs all presented produced by women and um, the only thing that was sort of male was well, two things one was there were no women at the time making transmitters or setting up transmitters so we we had we did have some mates in pirate radio who helped us and we we, we hired a transmitter which we actually the four of us did get up on a roof and sort of put it up and we also decided to have a men's hour because we knew that people would say why have you got a women's radio station? What about the men? Now, we were making a point that actually radio at that time was so male-dominated that, you know, it, we deserved to have a women's radio station, so to speak. But we decided to have men's hour so we could say to people, well, yes, we have a men's hour. And, of course, anyone realised then that actually that was slightly was funny because there were there is a woman's hour and uh, on bbc so we had a, a men's hour the subsequent women's station in london had a men's minute that's all they gave the men they had lots of men's minutes so, so that actually was tremendous because it was the first and you will know as media students and journalism students something is the first it gets lots of coverage and when we went on air, we actually had Sky News in the studio filming us because we were the first women's station. And we had a lot of coverage. And we had actually quite a few quite well-known women supporting us. So, for instance, Jennifer Saunders did us a jingle. You know, we had, um, you know, we had some really well-known people supporting us. And, and we made, we basically sent cassettes out, and it was cassettes at the time, to people um, and asked them just to record a message on it, and then they sent it back. We had messages of support from people. We had one from Boy George, which we were pretty pleased with. So, we, you know, we were really, we, we did 
catch the people's imagination. We have an amazing jingle package. And, you know, it, it, and the music was so, Bristol at the time was really ahead. You know, the Bristol scene was just beginning. Porter's Head, things like that. They came a little bit later. But, you know, Bristol was really quite well, you know, there was a lot going on, particularly around black music. And so we, our music was programmed by a woman who, in fact, I was in contact with this week, Ross Gordilis, who is known as Queen Bee, she's a very well-known DJ on the club scene. The music was amazing, and everyone said that at that time, this is pre, almost pre-Galaxy, pre, you know, stations with a R&B format. We really did reflect the music that was going on in the clubs, and so and also quite a diverse range of music. So it was very up-tempo, female-led music. So it, it really caught everyone's imagination. But we also had loads of speech programs and um, we had art programs, writing programs, but a youth program, there's an Asian language program. Um, really, we had great fun with the schedule because we knew how exciting it should be. So that happened and um, so after that, quite a few of the women's radio stations was sort of, you know, happened. So there was one in Liverpool, there was one in Bradford. And after that, quite a few BBC stations started saying, oh, it's International Women's Day, we'll, or week or whatever, we'll have more female broadcasters. We launched on International Women's Day, March the 8th, 1992. Also my birthday, which is quite fun. So after that, it, it sort of did tend to influence people around we, they could never really say women couldn't broadcast. They couldn't, you know, they had the wrong voices. They had the wrong skills. We weren't trying to be a feminine radio station. We weren't taking a narrow view of women's experience. It was really broad. It was really broad. It was women can do anything. So we, one of our real, really good, good things, for instance, is our main sponsor was Air Lingus. And one of our team had met the PR guy from Aer Lingus on a flight from Bristol to Dublin. And at the time, Aer Lingus had a female flight crew, one of the first female flight, not, not just the flight attendants, but the, the pilots were women. And so they sponsored the station. They were the, one of the only sponsors who actually gave us cash, which we desperately needed rather than in kind. And because we could link up with their I mean, their cause, their equal opportunities cause of having women in charge of, of, of aircraft, but again, you know, women have had incredible sexism in that industry. You know, women can't, you know, oh, I wouldn't trust a woman to fly a plane, blah, blah, blah. So that, for instance, was really exciting. And what was the overall reception of the radio station? Did you get any backlash for having a female radio station? It was re- well, that's really interesting to say that. Um, we had almost entirely positive incredibly positive you know the word got round everyone was tuning in it, the word of mouth got round and everyone was tuning in we had a lot of good reviews in the local press <laughs> apart from one and what they did that the the um bristol evening post which is sort of the equivalent of the echo they decided that they would get two people to review it, a man and a woman. And so they set it up as a sort of bad thing. And the man said, sisters should put a sock in it. 
So that that was that was the headline. Sisters should put the sock in it. That was the only negative thing, and only negative thing we had. But actually, it was almost entirely really positive. And we also we had a lot of female journalists involved in 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 the, the station, and we got lots of good stories because we had so many different angles going on. We had young women. There was a, there was a, a show called. Girls Express that was made in conjunction with youth workers, for instance. Men's Hour got a bit of coverage, um, and um, all the well-known DJs, you know, got coverage. And uh, you know, so so for instance, um, the first black woman on Radio One was a woman called Ranking Miss P, who's actually related to Bob Marley, and she had been involved in a station called. Dread Broadcasting Corporation, BBC, which was a very well-known pirate. And um, she had a show on on our thing. So that, that got picked up a little bit. So it was, um, so really, it was an entirely positive experience. And why do you think it's so important to have diverse voices on radio and in media, not just in terms of women, but in terms of, like you said, black women as well, and you had an Asian hour. Why is it so important from an editorial standpoint as well as representation well of course um you know you have to as far as i'm concerned you have to start out with a kind of baseline that that the media should represent the people who live in the country and we've had for so long and you know absolutely instilled in the bbc that that in a very narrow range of people initially and you know anyone who listens to my media history lectures will have heard me talk about you know the first lineup of presenters at the bbc you know women were very much seen as you know the odd musical interlude and they were not working in news or they weren't presenting news actually one of the first women in charge of news at the bbc um hilda matheson was was female. She she was behind the scenes, but hardly mentioned in in the media histories. So there was so, and, and in terms of class, um, the BBC almost entirely recruited from Oxford and Cambridge a particular person because, in the mould of you know the first director general of the BBC, John Rees, believed that you know that that there should be a culture. Um, communicated was the best, the elite culture. And um, actually, you know, there were people who, working class producers, working for the BBC occasionally, but if they crossed the line, they were usually sent up to the north, incidentally, to the northern service, where they could make the programmes about miners and things like that. And, um, and, and But, you know, there was always this fear from the BBC that the media would be, you know, the, the radio men and then, would be used to sort of, you know, for rioting purposes that it would overthrow the state. So, you know, that's sort of that, if you like, to start with. However, then, um, you know, because inevitably there were limited jobs in these things, and they just tended to go to the people who were there who were most competent. And um, I'm afraid to say that there is a terrible history of the BBC um, not enabling minority groups, black, Asian, people who spoke differently, people with working class, any any kind of non-received pronunciation Queen's English, and were until pretty recently, 
you know, banned from the airways, effectively. They were not seen as appropriate to be represented, you know. There was a culture of sexism and, and racism. In Bristol, it has always been, as you know from the publicity around, you know, statues toppling, has been a, a very, very mixed community. And black people in, in Bristol have always had a voice at local level, but it has not been translated until recently. There are now two community stations that have an, um, Udima Radio and Bristol Community Radio, who both have programmes made by the real you know, breadth of people on air uh, in Bristol. So things have changed. But even at the BBC, they would sort of cherry pick the odd good community broadcaster who happens to be black and tokenistically gives them a show in the middle of the night. And um, they're just now beginning to get it. And how ridiculous that people have been saying to the BBC, you need more people that represent the communities you know, on air. But it has remained this tight sort of elitist white male bastion. So you can tell I'm quite passionate about it. And But I have been um, doing, so after FMFM, I actually started doing some proper research into this and, and started looking at really what, you know, were the, the issues. And I then moved up to Sunderland and I was very lucky to get one of the first jobs in the country, which combined radio practice and research. So um, because I was interested in in, in sort of talking and researching about these issues. And I was able then to start sort of activating a bit more and, and, and sort of highlighting what was going on. But I've been talking about that since, you know, I came to, I came to London, uh, sorry, I came to Sunderland in 1993. So my was in 92. I came to Sunderland in 93 and I, I you know, these issues have been going on for so, so long. I was invited to a BBC um, diversity seminar last week. Finally, they have appointed someone very senior level, June Sarpong, to, you know, to really shake up the BBC. And we are beginning, as I'm sure you'll know, because you listen to the BBC, at national level anyway, to see a much wider range of, of women and um black people and minoritized people um, on air. We're hearing a much wider range of voices, men and women. So, you know, Jordan North, one of our graduates, with his northern accent, you know, does not have been considered. Even five years ago, I was talking to Francesca Martinez. I don't know whether you've heard of her. She's a woman who has um, cerebral palsy. She is quite famous now because she, she was a stand-up comedian. And five years ago, she was being told that it wasn't suitable for her to be on a panel because of her voice. We're now beginning to see people, even with, with you know, who literally haven't had a voice or have a voice that people find really hard to listen to because they don't listen to them enough. We're beginning to find that on the BBC. And we're beginning to get the director general. I mean, the director generals have been saying we need more diversity for a long time, but they don't do anything about it because it means giving up power. And we know from Black Lives Matter 
um, you have to give up power, and men have to give up power. And I, I, I sort of sympathise in some ways. You know, people have worked hard to get their job in local radio or national radio, and they don't want to give that up. I, I, I get it. You know, but unfortunately, that has to happen. That has to happen. And finally, BBC are doing something about it. Podcasting has, you know, a, an enormous influence. So many women I know have given up getting into the BBC or getting permission. So they've set up podcasts and the wonderful thing about podcasting is that it's, you know, people can have control over that space completely. You don't have to wait to be commissioned, they can just do it. And obviously, you know, we've seen so many amazing changes. And we've now got some incredible activists um in in podcasting and in independent radio production. So for instance, um, there's a very, very good campaign called Broccoli Content. Have you heard of that? The Broccoli Content is a campaign and manifesto for all broadcasters to change their representation and commit to change. It comes from one of the producers talking to someone at BBC, I think, and saying, we need more women and, you know, we need to have more diversity. And that producer, presumably a bloke, saying, well, in the normal diet of BBC, that's just broccoli. I, it's sort of good for you, but we don't have to have it. And it's a, it's a really great, have a look, you know, just to Google it, it's there. It's really, really good. Over the years, you know, there have been other campaigns, and I was part of a national campaign called Sound Women. And that happened because, you know, awards ceremony, awards are often sort of representative of the industry they're in. And again, about to about 15 years ago, there was a set of Sony Awards, which is what the Arias used to be called. It's like the Oscars of radio. And guess what? You know, there were no women. No one, no women won, no women were nominated. And they, the women in the BBC realised there are actually no female judges on the panel at all. So they set up Sound Women to change that. And in fact, we did Sunderland, we did some research for Sam Women. We, we actually monitored local radio breakfast shows. And guess what we found? And this was about mm, 10 years ago, maybe more. That's what we found. There were no women in local radio presenting a breakfast show on their own. None. Plenty of blokes, and there were some pairings, but there were no women at all. Now, that demo, that sort of data, was very powerful and it shocked the BBC. They were, they sort of, they were like, oh, really? Because they always used to say, oh, there are loads of women in radio. There are loads. And it's that myth, you know, quite often from a bloke's point of view, if they hear quite a few women, they think, oh, there are loads of women. But actually, when you do the research, and it's very powerful to have that kind of data to say, well, actually, there are no women broadcasting, you know, presenting on their own at breakfast and that, that we, we, we put that out nationally and that's when a few things began to change the BBC actually were shocked by that they were shocked into and chained if you like into making some changes but slow 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 change just off the back of what you were saying there about lack of representation in the BBC and also how great podcasting is you just want to go to Katie because Katie has a podcast called Northern Nutter, which is about people in the Northeast. So Katie, do you want to 
tell us a little bit about your podcast and what it aims to do and what you speak about. Yeah, so Northern Natter is a podcast for new and aspiring journalists, uh, proving that you don't need to move to London to basically be in the media industry. I've teamed up with a journalist from Scotland who works for BBC Social, and we talk to journalists and media professionals around the country, and they share their tips and tricks and stories about how to make it in this challenging yet rewarding industry. And I know... From what Caroline you said previously it's a very it's all about breaking down the barriers I think so that's what we're trying to do on the podcast listening to people's experiences and then kind of like seeing what the challenges are and how to break those challenges down um so we've had uh, BBC journalists on we've had freelancers uh, people in the industry and some of the episodes that we've kind of delved into should you write for free? How do you get paid? Um, how to get a stable job in journalism? And kind of nattering with people who have founded their own organisations, staying true to your word and how to build up confidence, uh, especially as a woman. And also looking at like the alternative routes in journalism. So maybe a university degree isn't for you, but on one episode we had um, someone who hadn't gone down the kind of normal route of doing a uni degree she built up experience and then she now works in a kind of part-time freelancing part-time job situation but something that we didn't want to kind of like propel into people's minds was we're not kind of shunning London so it's all about the north and Scotland but we have journalists and media professionals on from London who say they've moved down it's brilliant but you know, they, they feel that they can come up north and even to Scotland and do the job there. So I think from my personal experience, we've only been doing it a month and a half, um, but people have been really receptive. Um, I think it's something that needed to be tackled, uh, talking about the industry and talking about it from a northern perspective. But we have women and men. We have people from all walks of life and I think that's something that me and Katie have really learned this year so I've got loads of experience with Spark and it's been a really life-changing experience when I was there when I first started out there wasn't many women who were presenting and from kind of like Caroline's experience and Richard and Scott and the volunteers who were there at the time and um, it was a really humbling experience to kind of like someone to go wow, you're a woman on the radio and you might be starting out, but good for you sort of thing. And I think from doing the journalism degree at Sunderland and getting the experience at Spark, it's really made me think I am a voice in this industry and the message that I'm kind of wanting to put out needs to be heard. So yeah, that's what Northern Natter is in a nutshell. And what have you kind of learned through doing that? I know you touched on it there, but what were the main main issues that that you either realised or that a lot of people had in common? I think, from what Caroline said before, there's boundaries that needs to be broken down. So whether it be getting more diverse and inclusive voices on the airwaves, working class backgrounds. It depends who you talk to, really. I think with Northern Natter, we're getting people to share their stories and sharing their tips and tricks of how to make it into the industry. But one of the things that I've picked up on is 
people can't find avenues and jobs to go into after they've graduated but if they have that network there and they know like where to go to and um, then that avenues a clearer path I don't know if I'm making any sense um so I think the journalism industry in general and media it's all about knowing people in the industry to a certain extent but I think experience gets you a long way I know the job I'm in now I probably wouldn't have got it without spark and uh, other kind of editorial experience I don't know it's just interesting to see where people come from and how they're in the journey yeah and as well off of kind of the back of what you were saying about people getting into the industry as well I'm wondering if you could kind of give us a, an insight into your experience as someone who's just graduated because I'm still very much in this university bubble I haven't really experienced much much sexism I've experienced rejections in terms of pitches but obviously I'm in a very supportive community at the moment so what's your experience been like leaving university and having to go out into the world of work and what kind of advice would you give to anyone that wants to do that yeah I think that's a really good question and actually I mean I think doing vocationally based MAs like the MA in journalism or the MA in radio what we try and do is bridge that kind of safe world as you say where you're learning and and the the world of work and actually doing programs like this is you know it's a stepping stone isn't it into the world you know the, the the real world so to speak um and i think one of the good things about the way the university looks at um these kind of things is that they are they support students beyond the course so there are, lot, there are lots of projects you know enterprise place the digital lab that i think are going to open when we're all allowed to go back in you know on campus so and, and there are schemes and things that help students after they've graduated because that time is so crucial you're very lucky if you go straight into a job straight away and and really i think people need to see it themselves it's a bit like you, you've got your driving license but you're still on the green l plates you know yeah and you still you know you still need to get out there and get the experience on the road and um you know you need you need to sort of um find different ways of, of doing that now I would say to people, I'm sure you're doing this on a journalism course, and certainly we, we do it on um, the undergraduate and uh, media production and the MA radio, audio and podcasting, is you know how you promote yourself to the world of work is really important. So having an online portfolio, having examples of programmes like this, having you know having your work out there on a platform that people can, with one click, get to it's like an online cv and we help people do that and to be honest you know the skills that you will have now your social media skills your online visual skills so i think actually having online you know having all your stuff online making use of every opportunity that's given to you so if someone's you know sometimes Someone says to you, oh, would you like to go and do this interview? And, oh, no, I can't do that. I've got an essay deadline or something. You know, just go for it. I know it's hard balancing all these things, but try, try and, the, 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 in my experience, the most successful graduates are the ones that basically make the most of everything. And the fact that you are on air on Spark now and you've only, you've only had one term of your MA 
And he said, that that means you are taking the opportunity. You are the kind of person who will get a job, I know. And it's really about that. It's it's using every opportunity available to you. And I can usually spot those people in any group because they do, you know, and, and that and what happens then, because I sort of act sometimes as a executive producer, if someone says to me, I need someone to do a story about, you know, children in care or any area, I then give them the I give them the work. I, I will say I will put people in contact with each other and they will get the work because I know that you'll be able to deliver. I know that you're not going to say no. And and you know, Andy Cartwright, who is a commissioning, you know, he, he also works with the BBC. He he also, you know, will recommend people and, and he is regularly getting our graduates work sometimes before they've graduated. So with the BBC, and he does commissions across national radio for the BBC and, and so on. So I think it's partly putting yourself forward, and that does require confidence, making use of every opportunity, building a, a real support group around yourself so that you can ring up someone, and I'm sure you know who that is, you know, with you two, you can ring up someone in your little support group thing, oh god how do i approach this or um with often it also it's admitting that you don't know things but how do i edit this how do i do this help you know i can't I'm, i seem to be doing this and really supporting each other really supporting each other and i think that is really good have some loyal supporters and also use um the mechanism that the industry is now offering so um there are quite a lot of linkedin type initiatives mentoring initiatives commissioning initiatives use you know in some ways now um sunderland and being in the northeast um being a sort of minoritized person and whatever minority that is use that you know use it a bit not not all the time but you know it it it, it it's um you know, it goes in ways. London is such a strong unit that it doesn't really need the North. I mean, it should do, and we should have more Northern voices, but it does, you know, that they get complacent and just use their own contacts. So we just need to keep on going, you know, shouting about what we're doing, keeping support. It, and I mean, I, I worked, in, you know, I did work in London. Um, for a while, I think you know. I, I think I, I left them to for Bristol from London when I was in my late twenties. So, I did work in London. It was incredibly good at the time. Um, it was, uh, uh, but then um, you know I, I moved. I think you, you know sometimes people, if you're very at home somewhere, it's difficult to move. And I do know quite a lot of students who actually are quite they're quite worried and scared about moving somewhere else. When I was in Bristol, a lot of my students, when they were applying for BBC posts or internships or courses, there was a box that said, are you prepared to move out of your hometown? And they nearly always said, no, they're not prepared to move out of because that's where, you know, in terms of cost, in terms of security, they felt much more secure in Bristol. But I said to them, you are now cutting away any hope of, you know, you are, you are limiting yourself. But that comes from confidence, doesn't it? 
and financial confidence as well. So I think you have to be a bit brave. You have to be a bit brave, and maybe you know, maybe we do have we do have support systems in London. Maybe we, the university needs to, you know, we have a, 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 a Sunderland University of Sunderland in London, Canary Wharf. Maybe actually we need to sort of use that a bit so that people you know maybe have a studio in london actually that's quite a good idea i might suggest that to um lee hall um you know maybe we, we need to have a kind of london studio so a, a place where you could invite people to come and do interviews obviously you can do stuff online as well which is great but sometimes you need to be there you know you need to have a place you know anyway so i think it's about support official mentoring unofficial mentoring making use of opportunities, being a bit brave. Yeah. And as well, Katie, what about your experience as someone who graduated last year? Do you agree or is there anything else to add? Learning from experience from community and student radio sets it up and it's, I know it sounds cringy, but it is really life-changing. From my experience, like, I'm a very inquisitive person. I like creating ideas and that's something that I did in student community radio but what i'd say is use every opportunity you can get your hands on because my god it it can like really change your mindset and outlook on things i've always been the person who wants to tell stories and wants to be an activist for change but you know rome wasn't built in a day <laughs> um I, I can't describe it like when someone tells you no or you can't do something you just get that fire within you and I think if we all had that bit of real passion and drive then change would be happening quicker not going into politics or government but I think a lot of people's perceptions and opinions on things are shaped by their experiences and I think if you go outside your box and kind of do your own thing, you'll broaden the skills and expertise you have. So yeah, definitely be brave, grasp every opportunity and don't be afraid to say yes to things. Um, I think confidence is a really big thing, especially going from journalism degree, um, student radio, and then going into uh, working in higher education at the students union at the university as part of my job at the moment it's kind of mentoring students being that kind of pastoral care and i think if a lot of students and people in the industry listened to young people and people who've been in the industry a lot longer then the industry as a whole could really take a shift and i think that's happening at the moment I don't know about this year, obviously COVID's impacted things, but I don't know. I think the next five to 10 years will be very interesting. But yeah, kind of where I'm at. What you said about um, working in the university, I think it's a really great stepping stone for people. The university needs you. It needs your level of, of digital competency, ideas, awareness of our target you know audience so to speak and i think quite often media and journalism students they think well i should be working on a newspaper on an online journal or on a, on a radio station at the bbc and actually that 
an intermediary job, it's almost like the university is still, you're still part of the university and obviously getting an income, I think is a really good interim way of people getting experience in, in the real world. And it's part of the CV. It means they don't have a big gap straight after they leave. And so I, I think, and luckily the university seems to be making a few more of these kind of digital internships. And I don't know officially what your, your title is, um, Katie, but it, it's really, um, I think that's a very good way to go. And the university seems to be seeing its responsibility for students once they finish their courses. They're actually creating all these opportunities. Uh, the, the new digital incubator lab is going to be um, opening very soon, as soon as we're allowed to, um, on ne right next door to the media centre, for instance. We've been working with them, myself and Richard have been working with them, so they will have a podcast um, equipment to loan out to people. They'll have a small podcast area where you can go and record if you can't get into the studio. And you can meet people there. It looks quite, you know, it will look really professional. The um, enterprise place, I've, I've worked with them for years to help students set up small businesses and work on tax and, and you know, all the kind of things you need to know. And um, we've had some really good, you know, people who you know, people like Jay Sykes, um, people like Chantal Herbert have, have funding and space and advice from enterprise place over in center of town and that's really um again that that year you know having that as your sort of you know either while you're at university or art straight afterwards it's all about supporting you and and, and you'll you'll realize after doing a year the job you're in katie you will have got so many more skills i mean when i first i went into my first job i actually got my first job while I was still at uni, you know, that's what happened. It did happen a bit more those days. And I sat, I remember sitting in my new desk, I was working on a community arts project, and I'd never, this is pre-mobile phones, of course, I had never really made phone calls before, you know, in my university life. I actually used to write to people when you wanted them to be interviewed, and they used to write back. So um, I had a whole list of people that I had to talk to to introduce myself when I'd started this new job. And it took me about a week to pluck up courage to make the first phone call because I was so scared. And um, what I ended up doing is writing what I needed to say to everyone on a card. And then I'd dial, and it was, you know, dialing the old way. And, um, and then I'd read what I'd said, and I still give that advice to students. I still do it myself. If I have to, you know, could talk to a really important person and, you know, a bit like an elevator pitch, you, and you know they're really busy and really important, I write down what I've got to say. And I think, you know, that, uh, you know, luckily I was in an organisation that really, you know, that, that I was, you know, I was cheap and, and, you know, junior. And so they let me find my own way um but it, it it is really scary and actually if you can work and get support from the university they've got loads of schemes in different ways and also buy equipment you know you know the various schemes use that and put your energy into that because it will really you know if you can buy a decent mic now or even a podcast unit you know that is you set up and it's a significant amount of money that, that you won't have you know so i think 
encouraging, you know, encourage students, media students to use all these um, university things. And I think the university are committed to giving advice to people for several years after they've left the university, because it, it's almost like we realize, we, we do realize that sometimes people don't really realize how much worse the university is to them until they've left. I mean, I did a bit of research years ago about employability and we interviewed students about five years down the line and they said um, they haven't realised how useful certain things were on their courses, even things like writing essays, um, until five years in they suddenly realised how useful the course, that part of the course had been. And I think it's a bit the same with sort of the, you know, the kind of support the university can give. Some people don't mature or realize because they're so busy just dealing with the whole university experience or living away from home or you know living <laughs> mental health they don't realize until a bit later and so that's why i think it's really great that the university now you know I, i'm i still am in contact with loads of students because i a i care about them and b i'm uh, you know I, I i know we can still give them help great thing now of course is that some of them then come back and as visiting lecturers or we go you know they can start mentoring students themselves and we do now because you know i've been at this university so long and the courses have been going on so long we've we've actually got this raft of people who will help you know so it, it, it's i think that's really important for people to realize how don't you just because you're leaving a course doesn't mean you're leaving the university and as well just just moving on to another issue that women face in the industry, um, just the harassment of female journalists as well, or women in the media. So a study from The Guardian, analysis of 70 million comments recorded by The Guardian between 1999 and 2016, showed that among the 10 staff journalists who received the highest level of abuse, eight were women, while two others were black men. How do we cope with that and how do we address that and why do we think that that happens to so many women in industry? That's a really important point. So I mean harassment has always been there and I you know over the years I've spoken to quite a lot of students female students and they've said well we don't have any problems they said we don't have any discrimination and I don't really see what the problem is and I'm afraid I, I say to them that's great. I'm really pleased at the moment in your peer group, in your course, in your friends, you're not having any of that. And you can, you know, you can tell someone if they're leaving inappropriately. And that's brilliant. I said, unfortunately, there are two things that are going to happen to you when you leave university. One is that you are, you know, you're going to be in the outside world of work and, and things are different, you know, they can be really different and it'll be shocking to you when you, you know, someone does use your sex to, uh, you know, oppress you in some way. Um, and, and it will be shocking that, you know, but it will happen, unfortunately. I mean, what you're lucky if it doesn't happen at all. And the other thing that will happen to you is that you'll want to take time out to have children, to have a family. And those two things, the world of work and needing to, you know, wanting to to, to reproduce, uh, two areas have meant that women and people who are oppressed because of, or, 
the abuse because of who they are, the colour of their skin, that they have a disability, or they're just not, you know, normal in, in, in the way that society defines these things. So then you need to have strategies, legal strategies, support from unions, um, and, um, you know, and support, you know, from people who know what you're going through. And that's why research such as the one you've just mentioned is so important. Because unfortunately, when people are students, I mean, of course, a lot of students are working, and women will certainly know, for instance, if you're working in a bar or a restaurant, you will know what harassment and abuse is. You will know what it's like to walk home and be and be scared. And I mean, that was, I think that's the first time many female students um, or students of colour or students, you know, when unfortunately we know, I can still remember as, as a student, I, I did self-defence classes in London, you know, when I was a student because of, of, of feeling scared. Actually, I got a car when I was 22 and that liberated me completely from being scared and, and being scared of those things, the things late at night and then have to go you know, use public transport. I mean, I, I'm not saying that's the answer, and obviously <laughs> environmental issues as well. But, you know, all those things, you, you, you're going to need in your, your armour of support to, to, to sort of deal with that. Join a union, that will help protect your rights at work. Um, use the law. Get to know what is trolling, what is not, and, and how to stay safe. I mean, I, I did self-defence classes. I guess now the equivalent, well, obviously that's still an issue for women. It is still an issue for black people. Research that we've just had at our, in the university says that black students, um, they are not feeling safe um, inside and outside the studio, outside the campus. And we are now the, um, there's a group of, of us at the university at senior level, and we are looking at all sorts of, of things to, to, to enable um, students to feel safer and it's really really important if you don't feel safe you know that maslow's hierarchy of needs if you don't feel safe basically of your own in your own body you cannot actualize yourself as a person and, and working if you're feeling terrified every time you go out so i think you know actually being aware being savvy being not naive you know actually realizing it is a tough world out there it is tough, um, if, uh, and it is tough in all sorts of ways for all sorts of reasons, you know. So it, it and it, it it can be tough for young white men as well. It can be tough as working class men. It, it, you know, there's all sorts of different ways we can cut this diversity cake. You know, but we we do you know that needs to be taken seriously and and. Um, I think we need to be very, very aware of, of, of our own confidence and, 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 and our own, you know, the issues for all of us and, and get support and if, you know, in the workplace. As well, Katie, what about you, um, especially being someone who's recently graduated and with social media as well? Do you ever find that you've experienced it or that you've seen something on social media? Yeah, I think it's really important nowadays with young people on social media to distance yourself turn your phone off 
delete the apps on your phone if you're experiencing some sort of trolling or harassment it's okay to step away from it which is something I wish I told myself three years ago um I haven't experienced that much trolling I must say but then again I'm more of a scroller of social media I don't tweet much I think I probably am afraid of the backlash that I might get but I'm learning to construct the way I write things whether that be a blog, website, on Twitter, on social media, in a kind of positive, constructive light. You you will encounter people who will harass you and bully you and troll you, but you've got to go from a standpoint of you stand higher than them. Um, not to sound egotistical, but like you need to have the right resources and ways to cope with trolling on social media so that you can see it in a positive life and not light and not be part of them yeah it's an it's a very interesting topic i think i need to have like research and more evidence to kind of talk about it more but yeah it's a lot different now than i think it was 20 years ago i remember doing a kind of essay at uni whether twitter was good or bad and i don't think i actually came to the conclusion conclusion of either but um it was more on the side of it was for good because you can network, obviously build up a sort of online portfolio, but I can definitely see the flip side. Yeah, it's an interesting topic. Yeah, I think what that you said... It could be a whole programme, couldn't it? <laughs> it could be. I think as well what you said there, we are just running out of time, but I think it is just important to know what you said about creating boundaries. As I found that when I first started this this degree, I was constantly on my phone answering emails, trying to network all the time and whilst that is something that you need to do I think it is also important to know when it gets too much when to turn your phone off when to set boundaries and when to protect yourself thank you so much for both of you for coming on and talking about your experience it was really really interesting for me so thank you so much I hope that anyone who's listening has learned a lot as well learned about how to either get into the industry network protect yourself So thank you very much and we'll see you next week on In Her Shoes. Have a great week.